Hello, everybody. Chief Patrol Agent Ryan Landrum here at the U.S. Border Patrol Academy in Artesia, New Mexico, coming to you with another episode of the What's Important Now podcast. Here at the Border Patrol Academy, uh, under my command, we focus on three pillars, leader engagement, readiness, and modernization. I'm able to do that based on the work that my predecessor, Chief Jason Owens, did in his command in the U.S. Border Patrol Academy environment. The interesting part is, as it relates to readiness, as it relates to modernization, Chief Owen set up this What's Important Now podcast for all of us to enjoy. What we don't know is much about Chief Jason Owens. So today, I'd like to introduce you to my guest, Chief Patrol Agent of the Del Rio Sector, Jason Owens. Chief, welcome. Thanks for having me, and congratulations on your new command officially. Thank you, sir. So why are you in town? Well, I'm in town because uh, I had to attend somebody's change of command ceremony. I had to hand the flag off to the next generation uh, chief of the Border Patrol Academy, Mr. Ryan Landrum. And I have to say the uh, the academy is in great hands. I appreciate it, sir. So just for context for the audience who may not be aware, um, traditionally in the Border Patrol, when one chief leaves a command and another chief comes into command, uh, there's usually uh, a symbolic ceremony where quite literally we take the, the command the the uh, the guide on from that particular command from one hand you hand it over to the chief of the U.S. Border Patrol the chief of the U.S. Border Patrol then hands it back over to me signifying that uh, you have relinquished command and that I have assumed command it's it's largely symbolic but at the same time it, it means a lot it allows the chief uh, to communicate to all audiences that he's that this new chief is the chief representative for the organization in this area of operation mm-hmm. so I appreciate you coming out um, and being able to follow you for a second time, as we mentioned uh, in our previous That's podcast, right. is uh, is an honor for me because, like I said in the opening, um, I really am able to uh, exercise my vision based on the foundation that you have set. So that's two places now, Rio Grande City Station as the patrol agent in charge and the chief patrol agent at the academy. And it just makes my job tremendously more easy uh, having to have the opportunity to follow you. Well, and I want to say, so that the, the change of command ceremony, it is, it's symbolic, but it's a powerful symbol. It's, it's one of those things that, uh, that we all take pride in. Exactly. You know, there, there's so much about our culture and about who we are as agents when we wear this uniform. And it's one of those few opportunities that we give a glimpse to the outside world as to who we are and and what's important to us and and yeah it's it's a very short ceremony it's yeah. it's it's very structured but it's very meaningful to have that guide on that comes from Washington D.C. the headquarters guide on and to have the chief of the border patrol tell everybody tell you in front of everybody that he trusts you to take command mm-hmm. it's such a and we talked about this before yeah. it's such an overwhelming and humbling experience whenever you're standing there and you're thinking man I just became a chief patrol agent <laughs> I can remember you know looking up to the chief patrol agent when I started in El Centro Sector, his name was Tom Walker. He was Bortac class one. Mm-hmm. And I remember the thing that stuck out in my mind is he was always there in the gym working out. And at the same time, the rest of us were, he didn't let, uh, you know, the fact that he was the chief or that he spent a lot of time indoors. He, he walked the walk yeah. and that's uh, right from the start. That was one of the things that I said, okay, I want to be like that. Yeah. And so from that moment, I was looking up to that position of chief patrol agent. So it, that, that's, a, that's a huge goal in the Border Patrol, somebody that, that attains that level, and you did. Congratulations. I appreciate it. I'll tell you the one thing, uh, kind of you know, going down this rabbit hole a little bit, but the one thing that uh, unexpectedly was most impactful for me is reaffirming my oath of office. Yep. So we all know it's a structured kind of situation uh, and, and ceremony, but it's impactful. It, re- it reminds you why you're here, and each word means something. Every word has a place. And in order to, uh, to reaffirm that in front of family, friends, uh, we had some trainees there today, uh, it, was, uh, it was super impactful and reminds me why, we, why I do what I do. And you do it in front of the people that, that matter the most to you, that yeah. mean the most to you. It had to be something special to see your wife and your kids. Yeah. I, the, your kids are cute, adorable, <laughs> by the way. It, yeah. uh, I'd be home all the time. If I, you know, I'm, I'm a granddad now, so my kids are all grown and gone. But right. the uh, amazing family you have there, and it had to be special to do this in front of them. It, it really was. Um, as a, the first time my children have seen me in uniform. Is so it really? they're four and two years old, and you know, in the headquarters environment, we generally don't go to work in uniform. Uh, maybe a little different in the field. But uh, it's the first time they'd actually seen me in uniform, and I think my son specifically was a little, uh, a little shell shocked. I think he was proud. <laughs> I appreciate that. I, I hope he was proud. Um, I'm, I'm proud of him. 
so I want to get into a little bit about how a man from Tahlequah, Oklahoma, comes to be a Border Patrol agent. I got to hear this story. I don't think I know it. And uh, I don't think we have a recruiting hotbed in Tahlequah. No. But uh, <laughs> I, I could be wrong. Right. <laughs> also, yeah, obviously, you can tell by the name, Tahlequah is not a large town. It's the capital of the Cherokee Nation. So I, I grew up as part of the Cherokee Nation. And, and uh, what I knew was, growing up, that I wanted to be a first responder. I wanted to be a public servant. I, I knew that from a very early age. I didn't know what. I didn't know where. And obviously, being in the smack in the center of the country, I had no idea what the Border Patrol was. You know, I had never even seen or heard of it. So I was working for the Cherokee Nation as part of the EMS uh, ambulance service there and, and going to college. And I remember thinking, you know, I, I want to get into law enforcement, something that, uh, that it called to me. And it's very tough to get into the smaller departments. You have to know somebody, and they don't often pay very well, and, and, the, and the, the benefits and the, and the future usually aren't that great. Mm-hmm. And so I remember looking for something that, uh, that I could actually start a career in. And so I uh, didn't exactly have Internet back then. It yeah. was, if they did, it was the dial-up. And so one of the, uh, the college uh, colleges there had the career fair, and, and somebody that I knew applied for the Border Patrol, and they started telling me about it, and they had a brochure, and, and I just remember seeing snowmobiles, ATVs, horses, and, you know, man, that looks great. Sign me up. Mm-hmm. So I went through the process, and at the time they were having what they called an expedited hiring process. I don't know if they still do that anymore, mm-hmm. but normally it would take anywhere from six months to sometimes more than two years to get through the process because the Border Patrol just they didn't hire a lot of people. It was a very small organization, just a few thousand people, largely unknown. And so I remember having to go to Oklahoma City, which for me was about four hours away, mm-hmm. And it was a, an entire weekend process where you, you take the written exam, uh, which was the artificial language test, because if you didn't know Spanish, you had to take this, this language test that was made up. It was like trying to speak Klingon. <laughs> and, and so uh, so took the test, and we're standing there in this auditorium. There was, there was probably a couple hundred of us there, and there was a Border Patrol agent, a, probably a watch commander at the time, and he said, I'm going to call your name, come down and get your sheet. If it says pass or it has a percentage on there, you've passed the written test, you need to go make your appointment to take the medical screening, and uh, if it says I-N-E-L, ineligible, that means you didn't pass, you'll be able to take the test again in six months. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking around, and most of these folks are older than me. This resonates with you. Yes, uh, I was, I was 21, you were 18. That's right. And so uh, who do you think the first name they called was? Uh, Jason Owens. Exactly. <laughs> so I walked down there in front of God and everybody, and I get this piece of paper, and I'm not about to look at it in front of everybody. So I... I walk up the stairs, keeping it like this, you know, and peek at it and had a P on there. It means I passed. Okay. Yeah. Good thing, right? So then I go and make my uh, my appointment to get my medical screening and do the structured interview and the whole the whole process. But they knocked it all out in, in one weekend. And because I had never lived anywhere other than Tahlequah, Oklahoma, mm-hmm. my background took about 10 minutes. That's right. And so I find myself in August, I took the... Uh, the expedited hiring process, and in November, I found myself at the academy. It oh. went just like that. And so I'm in class with some of my classmates that one guy took almost four years yeah. to get through. And so uh, obviously I was the youngest one, and going back a little bit before I went to the academy, I remember thinking to myself, well, as long as I don't get California, because yeah. I'm in Oklahoma, <laughs> I, I thought, man, Texas would be really, really good. <laughs> so where do you think they sent me? <laughs> says and, here you EOD'd on... <laughs> In 1996 was a 325th session, and you were first assigned to the Calexico Station in the El Centro sector, which is Southern California. Turns out that was a huge blessing. That was a great sector, great station. It was very busy back then, and that's the first time I would had ever moved away from home. And so, uh, and I moved away from home, had a newborn son. My my oldest son, Blake, was born while I was in the academy. I got to fly home, watch him be born, and then fly back the next day and and finish uh, finish the academy. So we moved out from Oklahoma, where my hometown at the time, you could probably buy a house for forty, fifty thousand dollars to California, where you could not. And trying to make it on a GS5 salary and a newborn baby, it just times were tough. And I always tell this to everybody, if you can make it through that first year as a trainee in the U.S. Border Patrol, you can make it through anything. Yeah. And as it turns out, that's that's where I found my green family. I, I, I learned what the Border Patrol was all about. I learned what that, uh, that support network was. I learned about the mission and, and, and really started to embrace it. Like a lot of folks, you know, I, I wasn't sure if I was going to stay in the Border Patrol for, mm-hmm. for a career. It might have been a stepping stone, but I just fell in love with it. And 
course, the rest is history. Yeah. We've, we've gone through one evolution after the other, and as the Border Patrol goes, so go we. Yeah. So it's this story plays out, right? The, the, the one inflection point in your life, somebody you know just happened to sign up for the Border Patrol, and they said you might want to look it up, or, you, you know, uh, talked to, to Chief Landrum at Laredo, and he had a, a, happen, a happenstance encounter uh, at a checkpoint in Goliad County, Texas, in the middle of the night and, you know, some random month, you know, 25 years ago, and it made such an impression on him that he that he applies. So um, this is the type of people that, that we look for. The You know what? I'm willing to take on a challenge. Don't know much about it, but let's go. Yep. And it uh, and, and as I say, there's a lot of us that uh, that – we think, okay, we'll get into it, see what it's about. And, and I've heard <clears throat> countless times, I know you have too, hey, I'm FBI or DEA yeah, or ATF, and, yeah. and, uh, and guess what? 22 years later, here you sit. That's right. Yeah. Fell in love, and that's it. <laughs> so a side note that you might be interested in, uh, I too took the uh, artificial language test, but I just learned recently, like last week, that uh, they no longer uh, administer that test. Doesn't surprise me. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what I it, it didn't help me. Yeah, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I still had to learn Spanish, and it didn't sound anything like the artificial language test we took. No, and it. Uh, I don't know what group you were in, but they had six groups, and when you first got to the academy, they would administer a test to see where your proficiency level was. Yeah. And of course, the native speakers were in group one, right. and the absolute bozos were in group six, and I was right there on the bozo list. I was, yeah. I was right there in group four, so I I knew enough to see if I saw the word yo. I knew that was the same word repeated over and over again, and so that got me not quite in group six. I think yeah. it was in group five or group four. If I remember correctly, speaking of bozos, the uh, chief bovino <laughs> was also in group four. <laughs> yes, he was. Okay. And so that made it all the more interesting being in that class. A couple of bozos yep. in group four. Me and bovino. <laughs> if you know chief bovino, um, you'll appreciate the comment. Um, so we, we kind of went down, uh, you know, how you started, what class you started with, but we didn't talk about is what is your class chant? Oh, strength, Justice, and Pride, Class 325. Excellent. So, again, it's one of those mantras that kind of retires with you. You know, I talk about it with the, with the, with the class guidons. It stays with that group of 50 folks or however many you graduate, and it means nothing to anybody else, but it got you through your 81 or 91 days worth well, it's, of... it's one of those fact checks, right? So it's <laughs> a, if somebody claims to have been in the Border Patrol or in the Border Patrol, the first thing you're going to ask is what class number were you, you know, and... and your class chant. There's just certain things that, that you don't forget that mm. you know that will always stay with you. Your class number, your classmates, where you worked, it, you know the people that made a difference in your life, your journeyman, your soups. You know, those are things that uh, that that only a PA will know and remember. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, I like that you mentioned up front that you were kind of in first responder or first responder field in Tahlequah, mm-hmm. and you were specifically in let's say the emergency response medical field. Mm-hmm. Um, this plays out and kind of leads you down a path with the U.S. Border Patrol as well, right? So I think pretty much really early on in Calexico, you kind of get drawn into the special operations world. Well, so even before that, yeah, so I, I joined the Border Patrol in 1996. Well, uh, I was an EMT yeah. in 1995 in Oklahoma. You remember what happened? Uh, the bombing. The bombing. That's so right. one of the most, uh, I guess, formative things that happened to me in my younger years, was actually responding to the wow. Oklahoma City bombing, and and not for the reasons that you think. You know, it's uh, I had in my mind when we went there that uh, we're gonna be there digging people out and saving lives and everything, and and I learned a valuable lesson about being on a team and being part of this this mass response to a, a significant disaster because you got there and they had everything cordoned off. And there was thousands of people. I got there, I want to say, if I'm not mistaken, it happened on a Wednesday, and I got there on a Friday. Mm-hmm. And I, my badge, I still have the badge that they, that they gave me. And it was, I was uh, number 10,160. Mm-hmm. So there had already been 10,160 people show up in some form or fashion. Mm-hmm. And this was everything from people that were, you know, chiropractors giving free adjustments, fast food vendors giving free food, to the actual rescue workers. And what I learned really quickly is, you're not there to be the hero. You're there to do whatever it is they need you to do. Yeah. And so oftentimes it was critical incident stress debriefing or even if the, the incident command just needed thumbtacks and paper and they wanted you to go scavenge around the buildings, you just learned to fall in and do whatever to contribute to the greater good. Mm-hmm. That was a valuable lesson that, that really started to pay off later in life because you learn really quickly it is not about you. You are trying to achieve something greater as part of a team. If you can't learn that lesson, you're not going to be successful in any first responder field. 
Yeah, that's I actually did not know that you were a part of that, and that is a tremendous story. I appreciate you sharing that. <clears throat> so uniquely, and it's it, it's probably it was probably a little more uncommon back then. There's probably some more folks that do it now, but you're dual tabbed in our special operations, mm. right? So you go you go in and you get certified both in four star mm-hmm. and board tack. So which one was first? What drew you to the other? And uh, kind of what, what was your progression through, say, 2007 within that, within that team? So when I came into the Border Patrol, Borstar didn't exist. There right. was no such thing. Now, obviously, I had an emergency medical background. And so uh, when I was at the academy, I, there was a number of uh, Bortackers that were there, Doug Knoll, oh, yeah. Doobie, and, and the like. And, and I remember hearing those guys talk and, and hearing some of the stories about what Bortack did. And I thought, man, that sounds like something that would be love to try but again 21 years old from a small town in in Oklahoma who am I could I do this and so I set my sights yeah I want to give this I want to give this a try well you get to I got to El Centro sector and they did not have a special response team they didn't obviously didn't have a board star team Mm -hmm. so there was no real way to prepare or train other than just know what the requirements were and train on your own well this memo came out and it was in uh, 2000 maybe early 2001, yep. to uh, about this Borstar team, mm-hmm. Border Patrol Search, Trauma, and Rescue. And it was land nav, it was technical rescue, it was swift water rescue, it was medical, it was you know communications, you name it, had all these different specialties. And I remember thinking, man, that, that, that sounds fun too, and what a great way to train for Bortech. And so uh, in August, I go to Borstar Class 3, and it was mm-hmm. held in uh, San, uh, San Diego, California. Mm-hmm. And it's out of Camp Pendleton at Itson Range. And it was six weeks long at the time. Mm-hmm. And got in great shape. I mean, it was the, the PT was, was really, really good, really, really strenuous. The academics were really, really tough. I mean, they, they rigorously tested you on your knowledge of land navigation, on medical emergency, medical treatment, technical rescue, you name it. And so got through that. And I'm sorry, I, I didn't go. I graduated August 3rd. Okay. So I graduated August 3rd. September 1, I reported oh. to BoardTac 15. Wow. So well, you back to back and dual tabs. Got it. Well, because I, I was too stupid to know any better. Well, sure. 21, <laughs> so, that's usually what happens. So I can tell you, so, and, and that was September 1, 2001. So you know what happened during the time I was in my BoardTac selection course. Well, another nine, inflection point. 9-11 happened. Mm-hmm. And I can remember at the time, the, the BoardTac unit had a, uh, a special forces ODA team that would come and help teach the selection course. And we were out in the field. This is in El Paso, Texas. And they told us, they said, hey, there's there's an attack. These planes are flying into the the, the trade centers there in in New York. And, of course, we thought they were messing with us. We thought they were doing their exercise because that's what they did. You're not sleeping. You're not eating. You're out of your comfort zone. They're trying to play with your mind to see if you break. And they actually had to pull us into the building and and put the TV on and and watch. And so right then, a million different emotions start going. What's are they going to stand down the class? Are they going to send us somewhere? What's it? Same as everybody else. Mm-hmm. Nobody knew what was going to happen. So they went ahead and finished the class, and then we graduated. And, of course, the whirlwind ensued. But I can tell you real quick, so when I graduated the Bortex selection, having done the Borstar selection before that, I was 173 pounds <laughs> when I walked out of that, uh, that class. It just... <laughs> Nothing I would in, uh, intend to do now, and I wouldn't recommend anybody else. Yeah. Back to back. You did this as a supervisor, is that right? No, you I was a senior patrol agent. Senior patrol agent. So when did you promote to supervisor? I promoted uh, soup in 2002. Okay. Yeah. And that was within the Colexco station? or That so? was the Colexco station. Right. Yeah. So rather than going in, in and obviously the, the SOG, the Special Operations Group, isn't quite mature yet. It didn't it's, exist. It's, it's, right. Mm-hmm. It, we, we, we enjoy uh, quite the Special Operations Group as a team now, but, you know, those of us that have been around for, you know, 20 plus years, it kind of really started off as, you know, your sector teams and they kind of, you know, addressed issues in a special way uh, for each sector chief. And then, you know, over time, uh, through the leadership of uh, Chief Provoznik and some others, uh, they, they kind of coalesce into El Paso and create special operations group. It was just part of our growth and evolution as an agency. So every, not every sector, but the sectors that did, they had a special response team. And it was similar to BORTAC, but it was specific to that sector. And the standards were all over the map, depending on where you went, right? Right. And then, of course, BORSTAR was popping up. 
And at some point, we had these these great assets, and, and we actually brought them to bear for the first time altogether at the 2002 Winter Olympics in Salt Lake City. Yeah. So a bunch of us deployed to, to that, and I'll tell you about that real quick. Yes. That's, I've heard plenty of stories about this, but I'm excited. <laughs> Sounds great that, oh, you say I went to the, uh, the Winter Olympics, but what they didn't tell you is we were working seven days a week, and, of course, me being a junior guy, mm-hmm. I was working midnights, mm-hmm. and it was uh, I had mid-mountain right in Park City. What that meant was I was up on a mountain, guarding the venue to make sure nobody got in there and messed with it, which meant I was standing out in the snow when it was 8 degrees all night long yeah. and came down off the mountain at the end of your shift. You go sleep, and then you wake up, eat dinner, work out, and then you're back to work again. So, yes, I was at the Olympics. Yes. didn't really get to enjoy much of it. I didn't get to see really anything or anybody until the closing ceremonies. And they had me at the, uh, at the vehicle VIP gate, and I could hear the closing ceremonies going, and I could hear on the earpiece. They gave us those Secret Service earpieces mm-hmm. to talk, and we were basically just waiting for the uh, for the all clear mm-hmm. uh, when the athletes walked back across and went into Olympic Village, and they mm-hmm. shut everything down. And uh, so I heard Kiss was playing. Yeah. Uh, the, I think the president was there, and, and so uh, uh, Derek Pata, he was yeah. a speed skater. Okay. He comes walking down out of the blue, and he said, uh, he said, "Hey, they uh, they closed the gate. I can't get back. Can somebody give me a ride?" Sure, we'll, we'll flag down the next uh, Olympic Committee vehicle that's coming down. And so this this nice new Tahoe comes uh, driving down the road and flag it down. And the driver rolls the window down. And uh, I went to ask, and then I looked over in the passenger seat, Michelle Kwan. <laughs> so help me, she's sitting right there. And that's, that, that was the year that she fell and took third place when everybody thought she was going to win. Right. And so as bummed out as I know she had to have been, she still got out and signed all of our jackets and, wow. uh, and took pictures with us and everything. So it wasn't until the very last second, the very last uh, day there at the Olympics, that finally got to meet somebody famous or, or do something cool. Awesome. And, and so th- this, this being a part of this team um, not only took you to domestic operations, but it would take you around the world. Yep. Tell me about some of those. What was maybe the most memorable tour Abroad. So being a being a field operations supervisor at Vortec headquarters, mm-hmm. that's before it was so. That's right. Uh, it was a little different because we didn't have the only permanent personnel we had there were the team leaders, the field operations supervisors. So we would be tasked with a, an operation or a mission. We'd put together the team, train up, do the pre-deployment site survey, take the team out there, execute the mission, and come back. Well, mm-hmm. probably one of the greatest jobs I had in the, in the Border Patrol. Yeah. I got picked for that in 2004, and from there went to uh, did one in Honduras. Spent almost a year there, mm-hmm. and basically what you're doing is uh, you're you're embedding with what we call the host nation forces. So the Honduran border police, uh, and, and you're helping train them, mm-hmm. and you're going out with them on their jobs and giving <coughs> them training advisory uh, duties. So right. you're basically instructing them on how to do the job, right. and in doing so, you're helping them really do some significant cases. Yeah. And so uh, you know during that time. You know, tons of cocaine seized that was coming up from Colombia right. through the FARC, and then the weapons caches from the old uh, Iran-Contra right. days would go back to Colombia. So that 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 point in Honduras is very important for right. a multitude of people. And so, when would you ever have the chance to get in on cases like that and help having a meaningful impact? You know, we we helped take down I think the head of immigration at the time that was allowing things to come into Honduras uh, unchecked. So mm-hmm. there was a there was that piece, then in 2006 went to Iraq, yeah. uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom. We worked with uh, the U.S. Army on the border transition team, basically training them and the Iraqi border police how to do border patrol work. Yeah. So cutting sign and pulling drags on the Syrian border. And, yeah. the, and the entire point there was to, to make sure that the insurgents and, the, uh, and their, their weapons couldn't come into Iraq yeah. to fight our troops. Again, once in a lifetime, made a lot of lifelong friends. Yeah. Some interesting things there. Did a stint in uh, Colombia, working mm-hmm. with their their version of uh, of uh, their their border patrol. As you know, they have the uh, the FARC that uh, used to control a lot of the areas up there in the Darien Gap, going into to Panama. Mm-hmm. I got to actually see the Amazon uh, <laughs> forest. That was life changing to mm-hmm. actually get a chance to see that. Actually, go on the Amazon River in yeah. a boat. Spent some time in the Dominican Republic, working uh, with CES Front, the Dominican border police on the Haitian border, right before the earthquake hit. So, yeah, these are places that I would never have had the opportunity <laughs> to go. So, the the Iraqi stuff um, and the Dominican stuff, it's pretty self-explanatory, especially the Iraqi stuff. There's a reason why we were doing that. But I want to kind of go back to Honduras, especially overlay that with kind of some of the work you're charged with now, uh, with um, the way I characterize it is if we're fighting illegal immigration at our borders, 
we've probably already lost. Mm. So when you go over to Honduras or Guatemala or El Salvador and you conduct these special operations missions where you're training up um, countries to defend themselves or be self-sufficient, um, you're not necessarily doing that just because somebody said, hey, they want to do, they want to create a border patrol. Can you go show them how to do it? That's interesting. What's interesting is you're pushing the borders mm-hmm. south. Tell me a little bit. About, so overlay that with what you're doing now as, as the chief of Del Rio. And we can talk a little bit more about Del Rio here in a minute. But you're, you kind of have this charge right now working with uh, the EAC of operational support mm-hmm. to uh, engage with our, our foreign partners to help them get engaged in, in, in curbing some of this migration flow inward. Yeah, and so that's that's part of the evolution of the border patrol. It's 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 taken a global view at, at what our mission is. Yeah. It's it's to everybody's benefit for every country to have security and, and be safe. You know, that's that's creating what we call that defense in depth posture. Yeah. So if if Honduras is safe and secure, if Mexico is safe and secure, that creates an environment where the criminal element is uncomfortable no matter where they are. Right. That shifts the advantage from the bad guys to the good guys. Mm-hmm. In a nutshell, that's what we do. And, and a lot of people don't know that those partnerships exist. Right. We work very closely with the government of Mexico. We work very closely with the with the Northern Triangle countries. And we have CBP assets literally all over the world, not just for border security, but for trade and, and everything that has to do with the interests of this country, whether it's economic prosperity, whether it's security, whether it's our values. CBP is a very big role in all of that as the largest law enforcement organization in the country of Mm -hmm. which the Border Patrol is a part. So that's definitely a perspective that I think anybody in this outfit would benefit from, especially if they plan on taking on a leadership role as they go up. For sure. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm glad you're able to add that context because I'm sure, you know, Border Patrol agents uh, on the ground or even civilians are like, well, you know, we have this migration problem at the border. Why are you doing stuff in other countries? Why are you doing stuff anywhere else? Because that's a part of the solution. Well, and, and so you think about it like this, and this is this is one of the things I would talk about in Laredo and, and, and still today talk about it in, in Del Rio, anywhere that we have a border, really. Border security is not just about what's good for us and our communities on this side. Mm-hmm. When you have cartels that uh, that are violent cartels and they're in control of an area in Mexico, think what it does to those communities on the border in Mexico. Think what it does to those good people in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Border security benefits absolutely everybody. So they have a they have skin in the game too. Right. It's uh, it's to, in their interest to secure that border, and they care about it a lot of times just as much as we do. The question would be asked: Okay, why aren't they responding and and, and stopping the immigration flow from? There's no law for them to enforce. There's nothing that they have that says a person can't leave their country. Right. And, oh, by the way, they may actively be engaged in a gun battle with the cartel, so they have priorities to think about. Right. So getting to know those folks and understand them for the partners that they are and and the situation that they live day in and day out, that's an important aspect, too. Yeah, awesome. So I think you kind of characterized for me when we spoke that I was a glutton for punishment because I went to uh, <laughs> headquarters. <laughs> but it sounds like maybe you were a glutton for punishment, too. Back in 07, you go up to uh, Border Patrol headquarters as an assistant chief in the special operations uh, group up there, the directorate, um, formerly SOH. But uh, you went into that group. How was how was that? So that was good. That was you know, working in Bortec and, and being a team leader. I think from the time... 9-11 happened until I went to headquarters in 2007. I, I calculated it up one time. I think I was actually home for nine months. Yeah. That's no way to have a family. Yeah. It's a, that, that's a, There's no longevity in that. Mm-hmm. So it was time. I did I did my time there at Bortec, and it was time to move up and on and, and, and continue to grow. Mm-hmm. And so headquarters was the next uh, the next calling. And that also, as you know, affords you a perspective that, that not everybody has a chance to have mm-hmm. because you are actually working with the other facets of government. You're working with other components. You're working with other agencies outside the department, the NGOs. You're seeing what the political uh, life is like, you know, up there in the Beltway. So that helps you, number one, to be able to apply it when you get back out to the field. So Mm -hmm. you don't have unrealistic expectations, and you kind of have an idea of what's the what the art of the possible is like you ask for something or you need something or you're wondering why it can't happen you've been up there you've seen it you know how it works and so it helps you kind of fit into the process a little bit better so for, again for that's one of those things for anybody that plans on taking on a, a senior leadership role mm-hmm. having that perspective is absolutely great plus you're kind of taking one for the team because nobody wants to leave the field and go up and live in Washington DC where it's really really expensive right. and traffic is is, is terrible and 
you're not going out in the field. Let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> you're not only you're not just in an office. You're in a cubicle right. for for a couple of years. Yeah. But the experience you take away from it is just you can't put a price tag on. I could not agree more. We we discussed that, and uh, I think it's vital for the maturation of any leader in an organization to to experience that in all the ways that you just described. Perfectly said. At the same time, um, I like to talk about being broad, right? So you start off in El Centro, you go into special operations, you go around the world, you go to the Olympics, you go to headquarters, a couple of borders you missed, right? (laughs) (laughs) So you're talking about being a well-rounded leader, having these broadened experiences, multi-border experiences as we kind of describe them, uh, is another tool you can put in your tool bag to be an effective leader one day, um, because you can relate. I can't personally relate to somebody on the northern border right now, right? I have not done time in their shoes, but you have. So you go to in 2009, you go up to Grand Forks. Yep, and uh, I'll tell you how that happened. That was uh, not on purpose. <laughs> so what I knew, that, so the, the idea of going up to the northern border was always appealing because it, it's, it's interesting. I remember coming in, again, this was in the 90s, and we had northern border detailers come down, and every one of them had been in 25 years, had been a lot, around a long time. So you kind of had to wonder what was life like up there? What did the job entail up there? And so what I knew was leaving headquarters, I wanted to be, at the time it was an APAC, now it's a DPAC, a deputy patrol agent in charge, or I wanted to be a PAC. That was the, the jobs that I was at. So I kind of shotgun blasted. I just put in on, on open announcements yeah. for geographically anywhere. Yeah. And the place that called was Pembinan, North Dakota. Where? Exactly. <laughs> and so I remember being a little scared. I'm like, oh my Lord. where? So, uh, so I'm looking on a map and and the way I, I describe it to people is, you know that movie Fargo? Yeah, yeah it's two hours north of Fargo. <laughs> so, and, and so I get up to, uh, I talked to a guy that had been there before. He was at headquarters, and he he actually said it was a, you know, North Dakota's a nice area. I had never been there before. Mm-hmm. And so I had a conversation with myself. I said, look, you know, you put in for this job, but go interview. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't, don't put in for something unless you're willing to go. And so I did, and I flew in at night, and... If you don't know North Dakota, it's very flat, like Kansas flat. Mm-hmm. So it's all often very windy. And the ambient temperature in the wintertime can be negative 30. Mm-hmm. So it, it seems very hospitable when you, inhospitable when you put it that way. Mm-hmm. So I landed at night, had no idea where it was. Of course, the airport's out in the middle of nowhere. And I drove into town and still a little bit scared. Yeah. And I wake up the next day to a town that is actually a very nice town. And it's, uh, you know, I went and did the interview, the people there, the agents there very very nice i was expecting these salty agents that would hate everybody and anybody that was yeah. from the outside especially headquarters especially headquarters. <laughs> didn't find that to be the case yeah. and so i uh, went back to headquarters and they called me and said i got the job mm-hmm. and probably again one of the great decisions that i made is actually going there because the job on the northern border the life on the northern border is so very different than what we experienced down here on the southern border it, the you rely so much on partnerships and on intel because you don't have all the manpower and the resources up there that you have down on the southern border. Here, a lot of times when you go into a meeting, we're the big agency. Mm-hmm. We're the ones that have all the manpower and the stuff. Not the case mm-hmm. up on the northern border. So you have to really hone those skills with partnerships and, and to be able to do your job well. And there it's more a matter of quality over quantity. Mm-hmm. The people that you catch are fewer and far between but generally there's a lot more to it. The casework is a lot more meaningful whenever you do make those apprehensions. Life up there was completely different because, and this is where I really feel for the guys that are are detailing down here now to the southwest border Mm -hmm. away from home. In the wintertime, you you don't want to be away from your family because that's where you have to have people moving snow out of the driveway so that you can drive to to the grocery store. This is where if something goes wrong and and the electricity goes out or the heating goes out, it can be a deadly situation. So... Life up there is very different, especially depending on where you are, than it is down here on the southwest border. So you learn to respect that, and you learn to appreciate that for the sacrifices that the men and women up there make every single day, just like we do down here. Right. So the one thing um, you, you mentioned is, and I, I, I kind of like to talk to aspiring leaders, a couple of things. Number one, you said, hey, I'm willing to go anywhere. You kind of blanketed you know, job applications. If you have the ability to do that, even if it's mean getting out of your comfort zone and going to the northern border, or if, you know, if you've been on the northern border for a long time, going back south, that's important. Number two, if you apply for a job, be willing to take it. Be willing to take it. 
I, I cannot tell you how much I stress this. Um, does it impact your career negatively? No, not at all. But at the same time, uh, we talk about honor first. If you're gonna, if you're gonna, you know, apply for a job and you're gonna have somebody consider you and do the work that's necessary to properly consider you, then see it through or yeah. don't apply. Well, and it's and, and look. So life happens, right? Yep. So, so things happen sometimes beyond our control. So that's not to say you're locked Absolutely. into it, but it's about living up to your commitment. It's about being dependable. And so, there's somebody on the other side of that selection that is looking for somebody good that they're going to depend on you. And right. so to go through that entire process and then say, "No, nah, no, nah, I wasn't. I wasn't serious." Mm-hmm. That that not only looks bad, but that that's a bad character trait. You right. know, that's not somebody that that any team is going to want. So. Mm-hmm. If you if you make a commitment to something, follow through with that. Yeah. Same lessons we learned as kids growing up. Yeah, that's right. So after you uh, you brave the the frozen tundra of North Dakota, yep. um, you head back down to what I would characterize as God's country uh, in the Rio Grande Valley sector as the patrol agent in charge of the Special Operations Detachment. Mm-hmm. Um, this is 2012. Yeah. 2012 starts to get interesting on the southern border. This is kind of where 2011, 2012, we start to see this migration shift. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little about your experience at the front end of maybe what you're dealing with in current day. So, well, first off, I had so I had just graduated from the War College. That was, uh-huh. uh, and so whenever I was getting out of the War College, coming back to North Dakota, I was feeling the calling to get back into oh, the yeah. action. You know, I, I did my time up there, and, and things were starting to happen in RGV, and, and so I was felt it mm-hmm. and so uh, I remember talking to Woody Lee yeah. the deputy chief of the uh, of the sector RGV at the time and uh, he said oh yeah you, you're interested in coming down here you know, put in a memo and what are you interested in and same thing I want to be a PAC you know yeah. that, that's that's the job that's the job and uh, he said okay we'll put in for PACs and APACs and while you're at it go ahead and put that you you know be considered for the PAC of SOD wait a minute time out mm-hmm. I, I had already kind of put the special operations piece in the background because yeah. you don't want to get pigeonholed yeah. you want to be well-rounded you want to be and he said no nah, I just I need you to help stand it up you know it's a it, it was a new concept and RGV didn't you know, they were just getting ready to stand it up mm-hmm. and so he said don't worry about it you come down here you know this is this is where everything's happening right now it'd be a good chance to broaden your experience it's not just going to be special operations so, okay so I did and lo and behold I got picked and that was right around the time when traffic was shifting from Tucson right. over to RGV. Mm-hmm. And we had what we call the uh, South Texas campaign. Going. Yes. That's where we were divided up into corridors. And the, and the effort at the time was not just about the flow coming across, but it was targeting the people and the things that were responsible for that flow. Mm-hmm. And I found that so interesting because it was, it was one of those things that since 9-11 happened and we kind of became CBP, we didn't have the anti-smuggling unit anymore, and so the, the, the casework against the people in the networks really wasn't there, not mm-hmm. to the extent that it used to be, and here we were building that back up. Well, being in the Special Operations Detachment, you have a role in that. Mm-hmm. You have a role in the high-intensity areas that the flow was coming across, so you really got to be everywhere that the action was. And I got introduced to a new team. So there was Bortac, there was Borstar, and we had the EMT program, but then there was this team called the Mobile Response Team, MRT. Mm-hmm. And that was, for me, relatively new because we didn't have it up on the northern border. And these are the guys and girls that just, uh, they want to be where the action is. Yeah. They just want to do good, old-fashioned, hard-charging Border Patrol work. Mm-hmm. They became my favorite team. <laughs> they were the most dependable. I mean, they were absolutely, I want to say in 2013, the SOD in Rio Grande Valley alone seized over 125,000 pounds of narcotics. Mm. A huge piece of that was done by the mobile response team. Mm. So not only did I get a very healthy respect to this new concept, but this team that just today still remains yeah. invaluable to these sectors. We, uh, we lean on them quite heavily. They're kind of the unsung heroes of uh, generally special operations. So they're kind of housed under there. But uh, I, I, I also called upon them uh, in the summer of 2020 to uh, quell some unrest that mm-hmm. was going on nationally. And uh, uh, we asked for 450 mobile response team members to, to fly to certain locations around the country to kind of uh, provide support. And literally within 48 hours, every agent was in place. Mm-hmm. And that's from, the, from national, nationally. And voluntarily. Voluntarily. Yeah. So um, they are uh, extremely, extremely proud of what they do, and they should be. They're, they're great at what they do. Absolutely. So... So you do that. You do finally get to jump out of the special operations world, and you go to uh, 
arguably the best station in the U.S. Border Patrol. Amen. The uh, Rio Grande City Border Patrol Station as the patrol agent in charge. So you go from one patrol agent in charge position in SOD over to the, the patrol agent in charge of Rio Grande City. I'd like to hear your thoughts about that station. So you talk about a humbling experience because <laughs> that, that, it's a huge station, and it was – and I'll still argue this point to this day. To me, that was the busiest station at the time. So you had McAllen Station and you had the Rio Grande City Station that were the two busiest in the Rio Grande Valley, in, in the nation. Right. And the argument was, well, McAllen had more apprehensions, <laughs> but they were number seven in terms of narcotic seizures. We, the Rio Grande City Station, were number two in apprehensions, but we were number one mm. in narcotic seizures. You could walk around long enough and trip over dope out yep. there in the, in the AOR. And I remember going to the station, and I'm standing outside of it you know, before I actually started and uh, kind of letting it all sink in. And I'm watching the, the vehicles whiz in and out, you know, and it's just the, there's a sea of green and whites, and, and there's the Sally Ports opening and closing, and, and there's bundles driving in on the back of pickup trucks. And I'm like, another conversation with myself, you're in charge of this now. Yeah. You know, are you up to it kind of a thing? You kind of have to let that weight settle on your shoulders a little bit and, and let it bring you down to earth because – what a monumental responsibility. And not only every man and woman out there in that station, depending on you, but, but so is everybody in the sector, so is everybody in the country. You actually own a piece of border that you're responsible for securing. Mm-hmm. Wow. So that was one, that was a, that was a pivotal moment. And to me, as far as I was concerned, I had made it because I was a pack <laughs> of a large station that was very, very busy. Yeah. Loved every second of it. And I agree with you. That that will probably always be my favorite station. Yep. I, I followed you, and, and and I can confidently say that's probably, uh, uh, to date anyway, it's absolutely been my favorite station stop for sure. And that, that is not a, to say that every other station I've ever been to hasn't been great. Um, I've done some tremendous work in Eagle Pass South, in your new se- sector. Um, that that work and the people there were tremendous. But uh, I think the the issue is the, the, uh, the work coupled with the people, coupled with the responsibility of being a patrol agent in charge, uh, my guess is that anybody who was a patrol in charge might say that their favorite station was of course. the station yeah. that they were in charge of. Well, thing is, so that was a flank station. That was out there <laughs> right on the flank of the, the Rio Grande Valley's AOR. Right. And so a lot of stuff happened. And it yeah. was it, it was never a dull moment. And how many times did you get woke up in the middle of the night because of a, a shooting or an incident right. or whatever? And, and, but that's what you sign up for. That's what you get into it for because you want to be a part of that. And, and yeah, I loved every second of it. You me both. But all good things must come to an end. Yep. <laughs> then you go over to, you, you get promoted to the division chief in Laredo sector. So one sector up uh, from, it's a neighboring sector from Rio Grande Valley. Uh, you're making your way up apparently up up river <laughs> from SOD to RGC. Now you're in Laredo. But you led in Laredo in, in a pretty interesting time. I'd like to hear a little bit about some of the things that maybe you had to deal with while you were in Laredo and how maybe they made you a better leader. Well, I tell you what, it, uh, a lot of stuff happened, mm-hmm. and it, it really endeared me to the sector, to the people in that sector, and to the Laredo community. I mean, I, I feel a bond to those, uh, to those folks that uh, I, I don't really feel uh, with that intensity anywhere else because of everything that happened. So I got, I got called to go up and be the division chief of operations, so I had all the stations under me. And, uh, and the deputy chief position was open, you know, and uh, and just on a whim is one of those. If you don't apply, you can't get picked. Right. So so I applied, you know, not thinking I ever had a chance because you know that's that, that's a very senior position, mm-hmm. and simply because I applied, you know, it ended up working out where I got picked, right. you know, and and so uh, take on the role of deputy chief, and as you know. That is arguably the busiest person in the entire sector because absolutely, absolutely everything comes through that position. Yep. So I'm drinking through the fire hose. I'm, I'm learning and, and, uh, and meeting people and, and, and getting to know this uh, what this command environment is like. Mm-hmm. Well, the, um, the chief at the time was uh, sidelined, yep. and so I found myself to be the, uh, the acting chief uh, for a period of about 18 months. And during that time uh, in Laredo is when we had the tractor-trailer of migrants that uh, uh, suffocated and died up in the Walmart parking lot in San Antonio. We had the little Guatemalan girl that was uh, shot and killed. We had not one but two agents that committed just egregious, heinous acts. One killed his his lover and and an infant baby, Uh, and one ended up being a serial killer that uh, was picking up people on the side of the road and taking them up north of town and, and, and executing them. 
Uh, that, that's just a handful of things that happened in the space of 18 months. Mm-hmm. And uh, the one thing about those two agents, they both were at the same stations. They both were supervisors. The hardest part for me was going to the Laredo North Station and and uh, standing in front of them and just seeing the look in those in their eyes. They were so dejected. They were so uh, shocked. They, uh, I mean, the one thing that the public doesn't know is we talk about you know police officers going bad or doing bad things. There is nobody on this earth that feels that more, that gets more angry than those of us that wear the badge. And to have it be one of your own that does something like that, this the feeling of betrayal, you just cannot put into words. And then, of course, you, you, you feel the sense of embarrassment because now you're looking around the community. It's like, well, they, they don't think that I'm, I'm like that. Mm. That goes through your mind. It doesn't matter if you're the chief or you're, you're a PA that goes out there and, and does a shift every single day. Those things affect you. They impact you. And you're out there trying to be the best you can every single day. You're trying to do right by your oath and, and the people that you serve. Somebody does something like that, not once, but twice. Mm-hmm. In the midst of all the other things that were going on, to include, you know, ten people in the tra- and a tractor trailer uh, dying because of at the hands of some callous smuggler. It's a very rough period, and we all went through it together. We all got through it together, and and I saw a strength in the men and women at the Laredo sector. I don't think exists in a lot of a lot of places and a lot of teams, and it made me very proud to be a part of it i matured as a person and as a leader because your threshold for chaos and 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 what happens tends to be elevated with each new thing that you go through and you learn you learn how resilient you are as a person Mm -hmm. Uh, so what doesn't kill you make you stronger right here man every single one of us in laredo uh, for that year and a half two years it was uh, it was that kind of a lesson so as the chief patrol agent how do you go about earning back the public's trust Transparent. It's uh, you know when we had that happen, uh, the the first one that uh, where the, the the guy killed his baby, uh, we went up there and stood side by side with the community and, and the community leaders. And this cannot stand. This person, he not only betrayed us, but he betrayed his community. He betrayed everybody. Justice needs to be served, and we stand with the community of Laredo, being transparent about anything that would help the case. You know, taking part in helping. That's the only thing you can do in a situation like that where a member of your team has betrayed mm-hmm. the trust of the people we serve is to lay yourself bare and and be there for the community that, that your team, because of this individual, has wronged. Yeah. So it's interesting, and I'm going to disagree with you. It's not the only thing you can do. You can, you can say you have a public can statement. Uh, it's under investigation. We have no yeah. comment. Right? But the only right thing you can do is be transparent. So while, you know, it's, it seems dichotomous, but you could have chosen to take the easy road, but that's not leadership. You're right. And that's so, so well said. And that's uh, one of the hardest things I've had to do. And bear in mind, when that tractor trailer incident happened, that was a 60 minutes episode that, yeah. uh, that we did because they, that was the first time I'd ever been on, on national television. And the, the nerves there, that paled in comparison to having to stand up there at a local news conference and say yes, one of our one of ours did this, yeah. and I'm sickened by it. Right. Nobody wants to wants to go through that, and but you have to when it's when that that's why you're in the position you're in. That's why you do what you do, and that's what distinguishes you from everybody else because you do the things that are hard. Hundred first, absolutely. Yeah. Right. So we we keep mentioning San Antonio. Maybe just contextualize for for a few seconds why an issue of migrants dying in San Antonio and tractor trailer mattered to Laredo. Maybe the, maybe the entire audience doesn't realize. What the imp- why doors of the nexus to Laredo specifically? So yeah, that's that's a good point. So the the tractor trader came from Laredo. That's right. So they loaded up in Laredo and they actually drove through our major checkpoint, which was we we call it Charlie Twenty Nine. It's on I Thirty Five, and and went through undetected because the equipment that we had was broken down. Yeah. You know, it just uh, you would like to think that you can be there twenty four seven all the time and always be on point, but at the end of the day, we're all human. And, that's right. And so that one got bias and and so again you you feel that right here yeah so there it's interesting because before san antonio the uh that particular uh, particularly framed story was always victoria Mm -hmm. Uh, and that one came up out of the rio grande valley where i think 
uh, I believe 19 migrants died at a truck stop uh, just on the outskirts of Victoria. And I remember being in El Paso at the time thinking, damn, that's that's home. Yeah. Like, so, you know, there, there's a nexus now uh, to my hometown where uh, border security, where, frankly, we failed, right? And we fail every day. So that's not the issue. But it reminds us, just like reaffirming that oath of office, that we have to take each second of each minute of each hour of every single day that we're on duty and off, frankly, to be vigilant, yep. to um, use our training, use our judgment, and do the best that we can do for national security and the people of the United States of America. Well said. Did say it better. So <clears throat> you go through quite the development in Laredo. So you have some really, really hard times, but in hard times comes you know, great advancement, great maturity, uh, all the things that you describe. Uh, so in 2019, you get your first real chief patrol agent job. So you're acting in the mm-hmm. sectors you mentioned for 18 months, uh, but then you get promoted to the chief patrol agent of the Holton sector. Mm-hmm. Where is Holton? <laughs> Holton's in the state of Maine. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Holton's in the state of Maine. And this is, you, now you travel back up to the northern border. Mm-hmm. Um, did you get a, you get a call in to go back there? It was just one of those things where you, so it was time to be a chief, and so Chief Carla Provost, uh, she called me, and it was it was when all other stuff was going on, and it, she, you know, she said uh, you know, we're thinking about uh, giving you the chief uh, chief patrol agent job in, in Holton, Maine, and so that's a, it's a small sector, and it's a uh, it's a good sector to start, you know, and and uh, and so yeah, that, that's where they need me, that's where they want me, that's where I went, and again. Uh, I don't regret a second of it. I, I actually kept my house. I know. In, in I was just going to mention that you, yeah. you loved it so much that it's you know hard to pull you out of there completely. But again, you go from Laredo, which was a, a sector of about two thousand people, right. to Holton, which is about two hundred people. You know, and, and and instead of one hundred and seventy miles of border, I had over six hundred miles of border. So again, you go back to that dynamic of the difference between the northern border and the southern border. And you have people that are just as dedicated up there. You have people that are trying you know, just as hard. There's real threats. And so you had to ma- I had to make that shift, you know. And, but, uh, but learning to be the chief in any command position is you have to accept that the responsibility is on your shoulders. And most of the time, almost all the time, you know, when a question is put to you, the answers are never black and white. There's right. always an element of risk. It's not which one is right or wrong. It's which one is the most right. Because if it was that simple, somebody would have made that decision way before it ever got to you. Right. So you learn that in, in any command position that you go, and, and you either accept that as, hey, there is always going to be risk in, in what I do, mm-hmm. and you just you make the decision that allows you to look yourself in the mirror and sleep well at night, and if it's the wrong decision, you own up to it and, and you drive on. Yeah. I, I was blessed because I was put into a sector where you know, I could do that. And as it, as it turns out, uh, there was... A lot of migrants that were being brought up to the state of Maine, and mm-hmm. and uh, I was trying to bring the enforcement efforts, you know, that I learned down in RGV and Laredo, up there uh, to kind of make the most of the limited resources I had, mm-hmm. doing bus checks and checkpoint operations, and mm-hmm. so uh, I had news articles calling me every name in the book and bringing uh, bringing failed Texas policies up to the uh. state of Maine, you know, you, you name it. But again. It was the right thing to do to to accomplish the mission that we had, yeah. and I stood by it. Yeah. So it's it's kind of funny as you sit there and tell tell that story. Um, I kind of opened up with you know my pillars that that I kind of focus on at the, at the U.S. Border Patrol Academy. That's leader engagement, readiness, and modernization. And I and I mentioned to you that it's easy for me to come in here and and focus on those things based, based on the foundation. But you know if you're listening o- across time of this interview, that's what you did, Laredo extreme leader engagement going up to Holton you're modernizing right so you're upsetting a few people right that's that's pushing the envelope that's trying to make a difference uh, with the with the knowledge that you gained from your you know then 20 plus years of experience you're trying to modernize the ways in which we do business up there um, and then obviously you know readiness right throughout the entire conversation but this is why it, it's easy to follow uh, Jason Owens in command because you've set the stage uh, really nicely for the person who takes over after you. Well, I appreciate that. And then the readiness, I think, goes to the academy itself. Yeah, that's the next one. Okay, then you, fire then you, away. Then you, uh, <laughs> after Holton, you come right into uh, chief patrol agent. This is where you pick up your uh, senior executive service chief patrol agent. Um, uh, also, uh, like you and I have talked about, you're a graduate now of the DHS 
SCS Candidate Development Program. So you're fully uh, ready to go. You can just, on a moment's notice, be promoted. You get this promotion as the chief. You're the first SES chief of the academy, if I remember correctly. Yep. And uh, tell me a little about your command here. Well, so I got the call from uh, Chief Rodney Scott. Okay. And, and for those that don't know, whenever you, uh, you get to these positions, you don't always put in for the positions. <laughs> you get a phone call, and it's, have you thought about this? Mm-hmm. Which means... Bye. You, you <laughs> so he said, oh, have you ever thought about the, uh, the Border Patrol Academy? Yeah. I think I said, because I was up in Maine, I said, well, I think I am now. <laughs> you know, And the Academy had always kind of fascinated me. One of my dearest friends, uh, Dan Harris, who was yes. the chief here before, and I saw what he brought to the table and what he was able to do, and I thought, man, what a fun job. And then a job that not just any agent would ever get a chance to do is, is be in command of the, of the Academy. Yeah. And, and then you start thinking about, just how profound the impact that you have, whether you are an instructor here, whether you are the chief here, yeah. any role you have here at this academy, you are literally shaping the future yeah. of this green family that is so important to us. I said this all the time when I was here. All that we want at the end of the day when we walk out the door is to look back and be proud of this organization, this family, to, to always feel like we left it in good hands and it's going to be made better. And so that's what you're doing here at the academy. You are actually shaping the culture and the minds of the next generation. Mm-hmm. So in that way, you are actually impacting what the Border Patrol is going to look like yeah. going into the future. Again, you got to sit there and let the weight of that sink in and let that humble you and bring you down to earth because what an awesome responsibility. Yeah. So I mentioned that this morning, actually, in the change of command ceremony um, to Chief Ortiz. And I thanked him for having the confidence to promote me to a chief patrol agent and even more so at the U.S. Border Patrol Academy where I have the responsibility, where we had the responsibility to shape the initial contact that we have with the next generation of Border Patrol agents. Mm-hmm. So you often hear, you know, I talk to my staff about this all the time and, 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 and rightly or wrongly, um, coming out of the academy, you can get kind of uh, stigmatized by saying, yeah, you're a supervisor, yeah. dot, 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 but it was at the academy. See, I think that's born from times past sure. and people not realizing just how much we have evolved. Yeah. There used to be folks that spent their entire career at the academy. Mm. Why? Because they were excellent instructors. Sure. So that doesn't take away from the fact that they made an outstanding contribution to mm-hmm. the U.S. Border Patrol. It does explain why somebody might be hesitant to pick them for a field position over somebody that's been in the field for a long period of time. That's right. Simply not the case for the academy right now. Nobody is here for longer than three to five years. And we pick our best and brightest to come here and teach at the academy. Why? Because if we want these trainees to be clones of anybody, we want them to be clones of the instructors that are teaching them what they're going to need to be effective and safe. And so the people that are here at the academy, they're seeing another side to this organization that that most don't even get to see. There's a complexity there that, that unless you have been in the academic environment, unless you have dealt with trainees going through these life-changing events. I was here during COVID. You know, I, I got here in, uh, so Dan retired in January 31st of 2020, Mm -hmm. and I took over as the interim chief. And in short order, the academy shut down because of COVID. And so back and forth we were, me and everybody else that was here, just trying to keep the doors open and keep trainees coming out because if we don't, the manpower that the Border Patrol has out in the field starts to drop. So if we don't do our jobs, that literally means the Border Patrol does not have the manpower it needs to be out there securing the border. Again, that's a very complex and very important job that can only be entrusted to our best and brightest. That's what you get when you get somebody that's been here at the U.S. Border Patrol Academy. That's what I saw. That's why I will never hesitate to consider somebody that's been here. That's right. And I think the organization generally has, has kind of illustrated a change in that culture as well. And it's it, to me, it's it, it was identified in the conversion from the chief of the academy being a GS-15 to an SES. So to me, it, it suggests that that the organization now realizes just how important mm-hmm. training and development is, and have kind of tried to resource it from the top down, and as you said, even the bottom up. You know, the folks that we we choose to bring in here, and, and that they're the best and brightest. But for anybody who still believes that the stigma is you were just at the academy is accurate. I think between the two of us can assure you that it is not. Oh, yeah. I'm happy to have that debate with <laughs> you. and me both. Uh, I could not be more prouder of my staff uh, than, and obviously the staff that I uh, inherited from you and some folks that we've hired on since then. But um, just 
and I come to work every day with a smile on my face knowing that the, these men and women are here to train the next generation of Border Patrol agents, and, and they're doing a darn good job at it. Well, I'm glad you're among them now. Thank you, sir. So, <clears throat> all great things must come to an end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you, uh, you, you get promoted to, most recently, the Chief Patrol Agent of the Del Rio sector. This is your, uh, we were talking a little bit about it earlier, this is your third command. Yeah. Call it a three and a half with, you know, giving you a half credit for your uh, for your acting time in Laredo. But uh, you're, you know, quickly becoming one of the more tenured chief patrol agents that we have. There may be a few others that have had a couple of the commands, but um, maybe not. But there's uh, there's something to be said for that. You uh, you inherit arguably the busiest sector next to the Rio Grande Valley sector in the country. And here we go. Here we go. So again, I get a phone call. <laughs> this time, from, <laughs> that's how this works. <laughs> from Chief Raul Ortiz, and uh, not only do I consider that man a uh, a friend, but he's somebody that uh, I told him whenever I left the Rio Grande Valley, I'll work with you anywhere, anytime. Said the and, same thing. And but this is his hometown, yeah. and so again, somebody that you think a lot of trusts you with his hometown. Yeah. That says a lot, and it means a lot to me. And mm. and so this sector is going through a, a very turbulent time right now because it's seeing it's seeing traffic that has never in its history seen there there's a lot of days that uh, that, that were busier than the Rio Grande Valley right. we're doing it with half the manpower mm-hmm. you know and and a lot smaller communities that can't absorb oh, that, yeah. that type of I'm aware so it's a yeah you've been there That's and right. so it's a uh, it's it's just yet another challenge that you know we're blessed to be a part of this organization that that we live challenge each and every day being a border patrol agent means that you embrace challenge, chaos, change. Mm-hmm. Everything you do is polarizing in the spotlight. It's difficult. It's stuff that not just anybody wants to do, but that's what keeps you going. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I've been in I've been in Del Rio since uh, since November, and it just keeps getting keeps getting busier and yeah. keeps getting better. But I'm blessed to have a very good crew that is there. That's a uh, that, that's helping me out. You know, we had uh, Chief Austin Skiro. He retired. You know, and uh, and he left a very good team in place. Sure. And so. We're uh, we're dealing with it as best we can. It's it's a tough time as it is for everybody out there. The agents. The one thing that 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 sticks with me is, yeah, rightly so. They have complaints, and rightly so. You know, and, and no border patrol agents ever shy about voicing their complaints. But you know what? They they show up every single day to work, and every single day they're still giving it a hundred percent. That is character. Yeah, that's on our first again. It is, and right? how can you not be proud to be a part of that team? Uh, I could not agree more. So 120 days or so in command. We want to kind of turn the flow over to you now. We're in the uh, What's Important Now podcast. So maybe talk to us a little bit about the two or three top things that are important to Jason Owens, the Chief Patrol Agent in the Del Rio sector today. So, okay. So I, I, have, uh, I have three pillars that I live by, that I have lived by. That, uh, and I shared it with, I, I mentored a, it was either SLCP class or maybe it was a CBPLI. But, so very simple uh, because... Uh, Coming from Oklahoma, I'm a simple guy. Tahlequah, right? you got to <laughs> Oklahoma, right? So, first off, you champion the mission. Yeah. You you have to embody the mission. You have to be the example in in every way, shape, or form. You are the ambassador. You're forward facing on on everything. So, you have to be the one that knows and understands and pushes the mission. You champion the mission. Number two, and and probably more importantly for me. You have to cheer your people. You have to be their biggest fan. If you don't love the team and the people that that, uh, that you're a part of, you have no business leading them. And and so for me, I found that from an early age when it became my family out in California, when I didn't have a support network close by. My my nearest family members were two thousand miles away. Right. And so I found that, and I and I found a love for this uniform and the people that serve in it. And so in every way and in, in everything that they do. They don't have a bigger fan out there than me. You know, I, I will always talk them up and, and cheer them on and, and be there for them as much as I possibly can. The last one is drive the narrative. And that one is important because growing up in the patrol, and it's probably something that resonates with all of us that have worn this uniform or maybe even other agencies out there, I always heard everybody else out there telling our story, talking about us, and I never saw anybody refuting it never saw anybody giving a counter narrative or a rebuttal and a lot of times that story being told about us it was it was driven by an ulterior motive an agenda it was inaccurate and it painted our people and our actions in an unfair light as a commander as a chief we own our narrative we own our story we own our history 
Yeah. People are going to hear it. It's going to be from us. Yeah. That has to be one of your main objectives in a leadership role in an organization like this. Mm. The people you deserve deserve to know the objective truth about what's going on. And that's what we provide. We don't have any political aspirations or ambitions. We just want the American people, the ones that we serve, to know what's going on, what we're doing to serve them. And so, again, we open the books and we say, this is happening. You judge for yourself. No, I I absolutely love that frame. And, you know, the mission that people and the narrative arguably is achieved. You know, there's certain things you can be a generalist at, but communication is one of those things you probably have to be elite at if you're going to be an effective uh, chief patrol agent in a place like Del Rio. But, you know, I I, I was going to mention it, but you, you kind of rounded it off. Don't be confused with politics. Communication doesn't mean politics. It means telling the story of the mission and the men and women that do it. And whether that you know, the story is is uh, inaccurately portrayed in some in some version or needs refinement, it is your job to accurately tell that story. So there's a difference between politics and, and and telling the story. But uh, I, I absolutely love that frame, and I may steal a couple of things from you <laughs> <Fair enough. laughs> for, for the fifteenth or sixteenth time. Um, but I think uh, we've come to a, a great stopping point. I, I can't think of a better way uh, to end this conversation than talking about the mission. Uh, and the people that do it. Uh, so, Chief, thank you uh, not only for coming out and, and literally handing the command over to me at the U.S. Border Patrol Academy, uh, but thank you for your leadership over time at the U.S. Border Patrol Academy and generally in the Border Patrol. And um, we wish you all the best in the, in, the, in the days ahead in the Del Rio sector. Well, I appreciate it, and, and thank you. This this was fun, getting the tables turned a little bit and kind of getting to be on, on the other well, side Well, well, well. I, I can see now that not only the podcast but the academy is in great hands. I wish you all the best, brother, and I have no idea. I have no doubt that the, uh, that the Border Patrol is going to be a, a great generation because of you. I, I appreciate it. Thank you very much, sir. And with that, thank you for tuning in. Honor first. <laughs>